Good morning, everyone. Today we're going to read um, Revelations 2, verses 12 through 17. And it goes like this. And to the angel of, ch- of the church in per- Pergamum, write the, wo- write the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fa- fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teachings of Balaam, who taught uh, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food, sacrificed to idols, and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teachings of Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. If you've uh, been with us for a while or you've uh, learned anything about City Church, it's uh, one of the things that we fundamentally believe is that we exist to proclaim the gospel, but we also exist to... um, contribute to the betterment of uh, the city that God has placed us in. And uh, if you've been watching the news at all, you know it's been an incredibly difficult weekend, an incredibly difficult past couple of days in the city of Baltimore. Um, I probably, like many of you, uh, watched the news last night of some of the events that were going on uh, downtown was full of all sorts of emotions. Uh, I was saddened, I was angry, I was brokenhearted over the things that were happening in our city And uh, as pastors and churches, it's sometimes difficult to know what to do uh, in circumstances like that. And uh, I often end up getting to that place, not knowing what to do, not knowing how to respond. But the one thing I keep coming back to to is the fact that we can pray. So before we kind of launch into a sermon, what I'd like to do is is pray again for the city of Baltimore in light of uh, some of the things that have been going on over the past couple days. So let's pray. Father, we, uh, our hearts are heavy with some of the things that have been uh, going on in our city uh, over the past couple of days, especially last night, Father. Uh, those things aren't happening in our exact uh, neighborhoods, Father, but they're happening just miles and neighborhoods away, Father. And we stand as one city when our heart grieves over things of what we've seen this week. Father, every side of this story is, is crying out for justice and in some ways crying out for peace. But we come before you recognizing that you are the true source of justice and you are the true source of peace. So, Father, we lift our city up to you and we pray for both of those things. We pray for justice and ultimately we pray for peace. We pray for an end to all the, the conflicts and the violence that have marked our city over the past 12 hours. Father, we pray that we wouldn't go backwards when it comes to justice and peace, but in some ways that we would move forward. Even in the wake of this, as we respond over the next couple of days, we pray, Father, that you would bring reconciliation, that you would bring healing where there is brokenness, uh, and that you would bring peace where there is conflict. So, Father, we lift our broken city to you, and we pray for your restorative healing. 
Help us to see how we can be a part of that healing, Father, even in ways we may not even see right now. But Father, we also know that our city isn't the only place in this world that's grieving. We watch the news and see an earthquake that struck Nepal and the thousands of people that have lost their lives because of that. So Father, we come before you looking at our world. We see injustice, we see uh, uh, brokenness, we see conflict, we see natural disasters, and our hearts are grieved at the things that happen in this world. The reality is it's not all that different from what we read in the scriptures, Father. Even in the time of Revelation that we're studying, where the world seemed to be crumbling, where it was full of upheaval and persecution and sadness and brokenness, and yet you gave John a vision that you are on the throne in control of all things. So, Father, we lay these things at your throne, recognizing that you are in control, and we lift them up to you. Open our eyes to see you and your greatness, even as we look at your scripture here this morning. In Christ's name, amen. I was thinking this week back to uh, the first time I got a job. I was 15, year old, 15 years old when I got a job. I was probably too young to work, but my parents managed to make it happen for me. And I worked at a, a little deli that was just a mile down the street uh, from where we lived. I ended up working at that deli for about eight years, well into, even after I graduated from college, I worked there for a little bit. So it was a great job for me, uh, and it was, uh, I was really intimidated when I first started. But I thought I was doing well. I worked really hard, and I thought, how complex could it be to walk around in parking lots and sweep up cigarette butts and take trash out and all that sort of stuff? So I thought I was doing a really good job uh, at my job for the first couple of months. And then I can remember about six months in, my, my boss uh, took me downstairs into the office because he wanted to talk to me. I was too naive to realize what was coming. But I went down into his office, and he started talking about kind of a performance review as to how I was doing. And I thought I was doing really well, but the reality was I wasn't doing really good at my job. He said, you probably don't want to wipe your nose with your hand while you're making people's sandwiches. He said, you may not want to cough uh, all over the food right in front of customers while you're doing all this sort of stuff. And he gave me all sorts of tips on how I could really start doing uh, better at my job, things I didn't even realize. But it was a wake-up call for me. I was naive. I didn't realize what was going on. It was a wake-up call for me, and I began to reevaluate my performance really at my job. I paid more attention and I got myself together because my boss uh, gave me this wake-up call. Well, one of the things that we've been doing the past couple weeks here at City Church is we've been looking at seven letters that are written in the first few chapters of the book of Revelation. These are seven letters that were given to John when he was uh, receiving a vision on the island of Patmos. And they include all sorts of things. They include instructions, they include corrections, encouragements, uh, promises, criticisms, all for seven ancient churches in the ancient world. Imagine what it must have felt like for those churches when John comes back from uh, being exiled on the island of Patmos and he comes and delivers a letter to these churches from Jesus Christ himself, telling them how Jesus thinks they are doing as a church. It must have meant 
a lot to them when they first received these letters. But the letters weren't just for them. They're also very instructive for you and I. They help us to understand what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. But they also help us understand what it means for us to be a church, especially in the first few years of the life of a young church that's in an urban setting. It helps us to understand what it means for us to be a church. And the letter we're going to look at this morning is the letter to a church uh, in a city called Pergamum. Pergamum was an impressive capital city. It was known to be one of the most distinguished cities uh, in Asia, in the ancient world. It it had a a massive ancient library that had 200,000 volumes that were hung over from the Hellenistic age of learning. It was a city that was set up onto, on a very big hill, and it had a, a huge uh, throne or temple uh, to the Greek god of Zeus. So when people were traveling to the city and they looked up to the hill, it looked as if the city itself was a throne to the gods. And uh, in that city, there were animal sacrifices to Zeus 24 hours a day. There was constant animal sacrifices to the god of Zeus, but He wasn't the only God that was worshipped in this city. It was a city that was full of all sorts of idols, altars to Athena and Dionysus and Asclepius, the the God of healing. In fact, the the city was known to to have sacred snakes that if you were uh, dealing with some sort of ailment and wanted healing, you could touch some of these sacred snakes and be healed from uh, whatever disability you were dealing with. But it was also uh, a major center for the imperial cult where residents could come and worship the emperor who was considered to be deity at this time. You can imagine that for Christians living in this city full of idols and this city that's devoted to worship of the emperor, it would be quite a challenge. Being a follower of Jesus in this city, being a church in this city was often fraught with all sorts of challenges. So what Jesus does through the Apostle John is he offers this young church an encouragement, he offers them a criticism, and then he offers them several promises in this letter. But the first thing we see is that he offers them an encouragement. He encourages them because some in their midst have held fast to the faith. They've held very tightly to this thing we call the faith. It says in verse 13, I know where you dwell where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my, my name, and you did not deny my faith even the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. Just like we saw last week when we looked at the, looked at the church in Smyrna, Christians in Pergamum would be subject to very serious persecution, even death, because of following Jesus Christ. Because they would refuse to participate in the emperor cult, they would be moved to the margins of society. Many of them would be impoverished because they they wouldn't participate in the economy that's centered around this emperor cult. And many would be subject to looting and to raids. Their homes would be taken over because of their faith. And many of them would ultimately pay the greatest price for their faith. And that is they would be martyred or killed for their faith. 
And our passage mentions one particular martyr whose name was Antipas, whose name meant faithful witness. And someone wrote this about the martyrdom of Antipas. It says it's not hard to reconstruct the scene which probably saw the death of Antipas. Known to be a Christian, he was summoned before the proconsul of the province, whose official residence is thought by some to have been in Pergamum. The civil leader was also chief priest of the imperial cult. A bust of the emperor was set on a plinth and a sacred fire burned before it. To sacrifice to the genius of Rome and to the divine emperor was a simple matter. All he had to do was to sprinkle a few grains of incense on a fire and say, Caesar is Lord. Then he would be released. But how could he deny Christ's name and faith? Had he not at his baptism been proud to affirm his faith in the simple words, Jesus is Lord? Such thoughts as these must have invaded the mind of Antipas as his Christian faith was exposed to the supreme test. Whether he wavered or not, we cannot say. All we know is that he was given grace to stand firm, to hold fast Christ's name and not to deny Christ's faith. He would indeed render to Caesar the things that were Caesar's, but he must also render to God the things that were God's. He could not bring himself to give to Caesar the title that belonged to Christ. Christ was the Lord, not Caesar, even if it meant the whip, the sword, the stake, or lions. So Antipas joined the noble army of martyrs. He was a faithful witness and sealed his testimony with his blood. Christian history believes that Antipas was martyred for his faith by being slowly roasted in a large bowl because he refused to pray to Caesar. We preached on this last week. If you were with us last week, we talked about this, and we saw how one of the distinctive marks of what it means to be a church is this thing called persecution. And if you followed the news just really right after worship, I remember going home and, and, and turning on the news or, or searching on the internet and immediately read stories of things that happened last weekend where dozens of Ethiopian Christians were executed for their faith because they refused to renounce the name of Jesus Christ. We've read stories all week about Christianity being eradicated from areas in our world where they had been present for over 2,000 years. And many sociologists and researchers are starting to uh, do the figures. And they, they estimate that somewhere around 100 million Christians right now in our world face the very real possibility of being martyred for their faith. Some argue that Christianity is now the world's most persecuted group. In some ways, the situation in our world hasn't changed all that different from what we read in the book of Revelation. So what Jesus does is he encourages them and he encourages us to hold fast to our faith just as they were doing and as he calls us to do as well. But that's not all Jesus has to say to this church. He has a correction for them. And his correction is that even though some have held fast to the faith, Others have let go of their faith. Others have let go. It says in verse 14, But I have a few things against you. 
You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. If you were with us a few weeks ago, we looked at the letter to the church in Ephesus. And that letter encouraged that church. It encouraged them in the fact that they had held fast to the faith. And what the letter said is false teachers had, had moved into the church and the Ephesian church knew better. They knew their doctrine well. They knew their truth well. So they were able to resist the temptation to follow these false teachers and that they had held on to the truth as tightly as they could. But their problem was they were so passionate about holding on to the truth that they lost their passion for God himself. They had lost their passion for God. They lost the virtue of love, of loving the people that God had placed in their path. They'd been good at figuring out heresy, but they'd lost the ability to love. They'd lost the passion of knowing Christ and the virtue of loving others. In some ways, the church at Pergamum had the opposite problem. They'd had the same false teachers move in, but they had allowed these false teachers to draw them away from the true nature of the faith, to draw them away from the truth. Some had held firm to the point where their lives were taken from them, but others had drifted away from the truth of the faith. One author wrote that sociologists tell us that dissonant groups within a larger society react to reduce the friction in two predictable ways. One is to compromise their distinctive beliefs and way of life and so reduce conflict within the society. The other is to keep their dissonance and tribalize, retreating within their own group and thus losing contact with the society. You see, the Ephesian church had tribalized. They'd retreated back into their safe, holy huddles. But the Pergamum church was guilty of the opposite. They were guilty of compromising the truth of Jesus Christ. I don't know about you, but my kids love nature shows. So if you come to my house, Animal Planet's on a lot. We, like, we still watch the old Crocodile Hunter shows with Steve Irwin. And one of my kids' favorite animals, ironically enough, is the chameleon. And if you know anything about the chameleon, what is the chameleon's special ability? They have the ability to change the color of their skin based on the surroundings in which they are in. Well, the reason they have that ability is to keep themselves safe from predators. If a predator comes and can't, seize them, can't see them because they've blended into their environment, then they remain safe. Well, a chameleon is not all that different from, some, from, from the error that this Pergamum church was committing. The church at Pergamum, in an attempt to survive, had walked away from all those things that had made them distinctive from the dominant culture within they were in. They'd allowed the culture to determine what they believed rather than the truth of God itself. The passage talks about uh, the teachings of Balaam and, and food sacrifice to idols and sexual immorality and the, the teachings of the Nicolaitans. And all that boils down to the fact that the church was acting just like the surrounding 
culture. It was an abuse of the gospel that thought that what you do doesn't really matter. It didn't matter whether you worshipped Zeus and worshipped the Roman gods and worshipped all these other guys and then at the same breath worshipped Jesus Christ. Now all that may seem like ancient history to us, but the reality is, is that that subtle temptation is here for you and I as well. We have to ask ourselves hard questions. Have we allowed the culture to determine our beliefs and our behavior? Or does our distinctiveness come from our belief in Jesus and the sacred scriptures? We have to ask ourselves whether we've compromised the distinctiveness of our faith in order to not offend or to get ahead socially or or economically or in our vocations. We have to ask ourselves whether we look any different from those people who are around us. We have to ask ourselves whether we are not subject to persecution simply because we have compromised all the distinctiveness about what we believe. But the temptation isn't there for us just as individuals, but it's there for us as a church body as well. You see, people gather for all sorts of reasons. Some people gather in in, uh, clubs and affinity groups based around hobbies and all sorts of different things. Some people gather to tailgate and tailgating roosts and, and cheer on football teams. But what is the thing that makes this gathering different? What is the thing that makes Christianity different than any other affinity group that exists in the world? And the the reality is the thing that makes us different is the truth of the gospel. And if we as a church don't stay centered on that truth of the gospel, then we become no different than any other affinity group that exists in our culture. The letter to the Ephesian church tells us that the distinctive mark of uh, the church has to be love. The letter to Smyrna tells us that another distinctive mark is persecution. And this letter reminds us that truth must mark the life of believers in Jesus. And it must mark us as a community of faith. We have to ask ourselves whether we have compromised like the church at Pergamum. Has the morality of our world influenced the way we think about life and about the gospel of Jesus Christ? Have we become our own gods determining what it is we want to believe or what best works for us? Have we picked some things to believe about God that work for us and left other things by the wayside because they are difficult? And if we're honest, when we ask ourselves all those questions, the only honest answer we can ever come to is yes. Yes, we have done these things. We have walked away from the truth. We have compromised. We have strayed. And we do it daily. We do it daily. So what becomes the answer? Well, the answer comes in verse 16, where Jesus says to the church at Pergamum, Repent and embrace the promises of God that come to us in the gospel. We don't remain faithful to the truth, but ultimately in the gospel, the truth remains faithful to us. 
There's three really powerful images that are connected to promises of God that, that are in the very end sections of this letter. The first promise is one called hidden manna. It says this, to the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. If you look in the book of Revelation, it's full of all these kind of symbols and illustrations and pictures. This particular picture goes all the way back to the Old Testament to a point where God's people are in the desert and they are starving. So they cry out to God and they say, would you please provide for our needs? Will you give us, because, will you give us a provision because we are dying and God brings them manna. He rains uh, bread down from heaven to provide for their everyday needs, to meet their most basic needs. The people were to take a portion of, of that manna and to store it into uh, the Ark of the Covenant. And it would be a perpetual reminder of the fact that God provided for their daily, everyday needs. Well, what does this mean for us? Jesus is saying to this church that's facing persecution, that's facing literal starvation and death, he's saying, I will provide for you. No matter what this world throws at you, I will provide for your needs and I will do it daily. I will provide for you bread from heaven. The second crazy image that's in the, la this, the last set part of this letter is that of a white stone. It says, to the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna and I will give him a white stone. And there are so many pictures that are uh, symbolized in this image of the white stone, all of which are packed with all sorts of meaning. In the ancient world, often white stones were used in court cases. If a juror, if a juror found uh, a, a, uh, a person uh, on trial to be innocent, they would cast a white stone into the courtroom to declare that that person was innocent. If they found that person guilty, they'd cast a black stone in order to express their guilt. But a white stone was used to express innocence. Well, what does that mean? What did that mean for this first century church? It meant that even though the government may find them guilty of treason, Jesus finds them innocent. Not because they are innocent, but because they have been washed in the blood of the Lamb. They've been found innocent because they are in Christ. These white stones would also be used as tokens that would allow them to have admission into to great ancient banquets and great ancient banquet feasts. So what does that say? It says, by Jesus's blood, we are declared innocent and not just declared innocent. We are invited in to the heavenly feast because what Christ has done. The third and final image is that of a new name. It says, to the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will give him a white stone and a new name that is written on that stone. Names in the ancient world would often uh, connote identity in a very unique way. They'd have more meaning than, than the way we uh, use names in our culture. And what God is doing here is he's saying that in the gospel, I offer you a new identity. If we are Christ's, the gospel tells us, we are a new creation. 
The old man has passed and the new person has come. No longer do we stand before God as estranged or rejected or lonely or cut off as enemies of God. Instead, in Christ, we are loved and we are chosen and we are accepted because of Jesus Christ. One of the, the privileges I've had uh, in my life is, is traveling all over the world on kind of mission projects. And one of those trips that I went on, and some of you in this room uh, went on that trip with me, was uh, a trip to Acapulco, Mexico. And while we were there, we, we worked in an orphanage uh, with kids that were pulled off the street in Acapulco. And these were kids that uh, came from very difficult places in their lives. Kids, kids that lived on the street, had been rejected by the culture, uh, rejected by their parents. I remember interacting one, with one kid who was, who was tied up in his backyard on a leash uh, for years and years and years. Uh, one of the, the leaders that I went with at one point sat down with these orphans and wanted to explain the gospel to them. Explain what it meant to be in a relationship with Jesus Christ. So what he asked them to do is he asked them to take uh, post-it notes. And he asked them to, to write that what words that express their identity on these post-it notes. So the students or the, or the orphans that were in this orphanage would write things like alone or rejected or estranged or cast out or unwanted, or unloved. And he told them to put these post-its on them because we often wear and act out of our sense of our own identity. And then he began to talk about the gospel. And what he asked each one of these orphans to do is to take these post-its off of themselves and instead replace them with post-its that talked about what their identity is in Jesus Christ. So the post-it of estranged gets cast off and the post-it of loved gets put on. The post-it of unwanted gets torn off and the post-it of accepted gets put on. The post-it of uh, rejected gets taken off and the post-it of accepted gets put on. Friends, this is what we have in a relationship with Jesus Christ. If you are here this morning and you don't know Jesus Christ, know that in him is offered something that you cannot find anywhere else in this world. In him is offered life eternal. And if you do know him, you've known him most of your life, come to terms with the fact that often we compromise. Often we walk away from the truth. We are the ones who have been unfaithful. We have the ones who constantly deal with the temptation of patterning ourselves around this culture and this world. We consistently walk away from our distinctiveness. The call to the church at, the per at Pergamum is the same for us. To repent and anew and afresh cling to the promises that we have in God. It doesn't mean that our lives will be easy, but what it does mean is that God will provide for our every need. It means that he declares us innocent because of Christ's sacrifice on our behalf. It means he invites us into the celebration of knowing him, and ultimately it means 
He gives us a new name, and that name is Beloved. Beloved.